I just think that's such a huge thing for us to remember is that the goal of the production of the world that we live in is not to meet needs, right? The goal of production in the world that we live in is to generate profit. And so if we're always asking ourselves these questions of like, how are people's needs not met? We're making such a profit. I think it's really important to remember that those are two entirely different aims. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Linda Ulrich. Every Wednesday, we'll drop an episode where we're talking to people around the world who have projects and ideas and are actively changing our shared future. People who are just not rising to the top of our news feeds. And we have one of those folks today, and we're going to do an amazingly unusual chat with Connor Ryan. Connor is part of an amazing brand of young influencers that are diving in wholeheartedly to the problems of the world and applying what they're uniquely built to contribute. So Connor's particular expertise is that he is one of the 20 most influential people in the outdoor industry as designated by Outdoor Magazine. As a proud Lakota tribe member and passionate professional skier, he is bringing his understanding of Native American perspectives to the problem solving we need to be doing in this world right now. And in this special episode of our podcast featuring Connor Ryan, part two, because the first episode was so fun and fascinating, we are going to go through the New York Times together front page. Yes, <laughs> but here's the twist. With Connor, we're going to be drawing from his deep understanding of indigenous perspectives and the wisdom there and offer us a unique interpretation of every single challenge and conflict highlighted in the headlines. Connor is a fabulous public speaker sought after because he is a translator of these complex, nuanced narratives that people are becoming fascinated by. As Connor and I explore the headlines together, he doesn't analyze the news from a conventional point of view. Instead, he delves into the stories, indigenous stories, with an indigenous lens. And each piece of news becomes a new way to understand the world through this rich tapestry of the Native American culture and wisdom. And topic after topic, we come away with a spring in our step. Because with most of these intractable issues, there does turn out to be a perspective that might serve us all going forward. We may simply have needed the right translator of indigenous culture to come along, and therefore we welcome Connor Ryan. So I want Connor to start with his a bit about his story because he's a professional skier, and there's a wonderful loop back to how he comes to help us as a translator of indigenous culture that relates to skiing that I never thought of, and so inspiring. I want to share that with you, Connor. Give us just a little bit of that story so we understand where you're coming from. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was born and raised in in the Front Range of Colorado, and my mom did a amazing job of of raising me but we didn't have that that cultural connection because the history of residential schools boarding schools in our in our family and so it's been a reclamation process for for us throughout my life of relearning the culture and you know really just grateful to to the uncles to the elders who passed a lot of this on to me and and gave me experiences that would kind of open my mind up to seeing things through through that indigenous worldview so your your mom was indigenous, and the way I understand it, you went to age 18 or so and sort of maybe found your way into a bit of trouble because you had this sort of yearning that you didn't even know probably what to call it. Absolutely. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then at about 21, I kind of straightened myself out and found my way into the into the sweat lodge and found my way into into skiing. And you know, now that's what I do is uh, I make ski films and I kind of advocate for folks to have these these different perspectives of nature that I've gotten gotten to to grow, if you will, through my own adventures and my own cultural kind of relearning and re-education. So let's go there for a minute because we have gone now through a, a whole episode without talking about your life's work in professional skiing. So so make more of that connection to us because that's, there's something fascinating about that story too. You weren't one of these prodigies that grew up on skis when you were two and a half years old and now no, you're not a professional skier. No? Yeah. So I started skiing when I was a kid, when I was in about second grade and my dad took me out to ski and, you know, my mom's Lakota, my dad's white. And I didn't get to see my dad a lot growing up, but that was one of the things that, that we did together. And I was really good at it from the start, but because I didn't see my dad often, it wasn't something that he could really set me up to, to be able to do. And my mom couldn't, couldn't afford it. Right. And so for me, it kind of fell to the wayside of these things. Like I dreamed I would always be right. A professional skier or a fighter pilot in the movie Top Gun, like, you know, the things you dream of being as a kid. And it was pretty far out of reach for me until I was 21. And I was getting my life kind of back on track after some rough years in my young adulthood. And I got a job where I worked at night and it paid pretty good money. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to, what am I going to do all day? And I bought my first ski pass and got into skiing. And that was the same fall that I returned to the Black Hills for the first time, kind of seeking out that that cultural connection. And so for me, they, they kind of went side by side for a while of really falling in love with nature and really starting to understand my culture. But I didn't really quite see how those two different threads became a braid until a few years into my skiing experience. We, we had a sweat lodge in this above this little town called Nederland. And Nederland is in the mountains and is like 15 minutes away from the ski area where I learned to ski. It's called Eldora. And one day I was at the sweat lodge and my uncle asked me to go fill up a bucket of water, right? From the creek for, for pouring on the rocks and the sweat. And so I go to the creek and I fill up the bucket and I look up the creek and it led back to the mountain. And I kind of just had this, this revelation that day of understanding like, oh, okay, like the snow that I've been skiing on that I have, you know, what's maybe the most profound experience in my life in, in skiing is the same water that then I'm using for, for sweat lodge. And this sweat lodge ceremony is all, all about teaching me how connected I am to this water and how this water is my, my connection to all my other relations in the natural world, right? And so that water that came and snowed on that mountain was you know, in the ocean a few days before it was on the top of the mountain and then it melts and, you know, it's in the trees and it's in the streams and it's, it's in me and I'm mostly that. And so for me, that's where I started to kind of break down these walls of the division between myself and nature. And I've kind of kept using skiing as a way to do that because it's a support that really moves people profoundly, right? Like you might've played high school football or something, but you're not going to move across the country to go live in some special expensive town high up in the middle of nowhere because you like playing football. But skiing is a sport that's like that. 
skiing moves people of all ages and backgrounds across the world to go experience this shared thing together. And, and it has a bit of a culture of its own as a sport, right? Wow. And so that kind of just sucked me in, in this, this search for belonging that I'd always had. I found much of the same belonging that I find in my indigenous community in the mountains and in the skiing community. And so a lot of the work that I've done has been to kind of bridge that gap from both sides mm. to help skiers understand this profound thing that they're a part of, no matter where they come from or what their background is, right? They drink that water. They touch that water. They're a part of this, this dance with all these relations that, that make up life, right? And on the other side, for indigenous people, we statistically, demographically are the least likely to ski of any group of people. And so just bridging some of that gap and giving it to some of the other folks like me and saying like, okay, like if I'd have known what I know now as a kid, who would I have become? So just doing my best, you know, each year to try to pass on that opportunity. So I do a lot of volunteering with kids, getting them out skiing. I ski with kids from Taos Pueblo and from the Clinket and Haida tribe. And we have kids from a bunch of different tribes that come up from, from Denver where I grew up. And then we run a scholarship program and we give away 30 full icon passes, which is like a ski pass that'll let you go all over the country. Just giving native folks a chance to to get out and experience the mountains and experience the places that they come from in the winter, because it's often kind of made inaccessible by the barrier to entry that that comes with skiing. What a story. <laughs> that is so amazing. Okay. I did recently interview a great thought leader named DeWitt Jones. And I want to refer people back to that episode and you'll find that in the show notes. And that is one of DeWitt Jones. He is the very famous Nat Geo photographer who has a wonderful TED talk called Celebrate What's Right with the World. And in his talk, he talks about there is more than right, one right answer. And after I got done talking to you the other day, Connor, I went away really thinking there is more than one right answer. And that maybe today you might help us look at common world problems and things in fresh ways. Yeah, I'm really excited to. I think uh, in, in reality, when we get to lean into our imagination, there's a multiplicity of, of right answers. And it's Perfect. a lot more fun to put our attention on that. Okay, so here's what we'll do. I'm going to just look at the New York Times here, and I'm going to mention a topic that's getting a lot of coverage today. And then I want you to just sort of help us understand this from another perspective, maybe another right answer. And we'll start with the top article that came to me and that my email today is about education. It's about a success story in education that's going on. And it's lovely, but made me curious about this episode, this chapter in Indigenous history in the United States, where they took a lot of children off reservations and put them in boarding schools. And I wonder what education would have looked like for you or, or, or way back or what have you. Just tell us about the process of education and educating children for Indigenous folks that in, in, in the culture you come from. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the favorite anecdotes that I have to lean into this story a little bit is uh, during the, the time that they were taking kids to the residential schools, to the boarding schools, taking them from their family and from their culture. You know, a lot of Lakota, we realized what was happening at these schools and that they were causing trauma and kids weren't coming back. And so there was a family, the the Crow Dog family, and they hid uh Crow Dog, who was a famous Lakota chief, Sundance 
leader, all these different things. And they hid him so that the schools wouldn't take him and raise him out on the land, educated him in a traditional way. And he went on to be, you know, one of the great visionaries for our people of the last century or so. And a lot of that, I think, came from that ability to like be in a space not confined by the the sort of rules of education and seeing what your mind develops to actually be without that. And so I've heard a lot of stories from folks who knew him, had first-hand accounts. He's not someone I got to know before he passed, but they say it was profound just being around him. And, and you know, I think a large part of this for me, I, I think of the research that I've seen that shows that children's brains actually develop the best during free play. And how much time do we actually give kids between the age of five and 18 to free play together? So I think about this person who is considered a genius and a visionary for not being educated in those traditional ways and not experiencing the trauma of the boarding schools. But I think that there's a trauma inherent in all schooling because children should naturally have that urge to be in community, be with each other, be with grandmothers, feel nourished. And our education system doesn't really celebrate kinship. So I think a lot of our social intelligence is a lot of the biggest part that's missing. And I don't know about you. I don't use algebra or calculus much on the day-to-day, but I do on the day-to-day wish that I had more training, more skills in in relating to other people right. and relating to the landscape. And so I think those are two of our massive deficits in the education that we have now. I love your reference to the science of play. You are absolutely right about that. And then, of course, your reference to, you know, what the human mind is capable if left a, left on its own to interact with the natural world is probably pretty stunning, too. I'm sure there's some science to that. Okay, so so that is a really interesting, fresh take on education. And and I should say that we've done articles and written things about innovators who are going that direction. Have you heard of the Forest Kindergarten? The Forest Kindergarten? No, yes. but I think I'd like to enroll. There is a wonderful article on the Goodness Exchange called The Forest Kindergarten. And it's about a place, it's, a, it's some Nordic country that your kid goes to school outdoors at four years old all day long, no matter the weather they're outside. That's it. And these kids are doing the most extraordinary things and noticing the most extraordinary things and creating. So I think it, it there, there would be a lot of actual data and hard science in real life cases to support exactly what you just talked about with education. So thanks for just adding to that dialogue. Okay. So the next thing on the New York Times is an area all about... Oh, course, the second billing, they did start with something positive in my email, but that may be the algorithm that sends me <laughs> the first story is positive about education. But the second section is all about what's going on right now. At the time of this recording, there's a tremendous war going on in Israel and one in Ukraine. And I don't want to get to the politics of either of those situations, but I'm sure that your culture, the Lakota culture and other indigenous cultures had a better way of solving disputes, or maybe it peeling back the onion and, and getting to maybe the the heart of problems differently. You want to talk to us about any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's an argument, you know, that I see come up a lot and in one of the most unfortunate spaces, which is that I think people like to often justify the genocide of Native American people by stating that, well, your court cultures were were warlike. And we're this way and that way. And you fought, right? You guys are known. We, we picture you with the bow and arrow and a spear. So you must be like X, Y, and Z 
projection from our culture when it comes to violence. But when we look at the archaeological records in North America, we actually don't find anywhere near the same evidence for mass violence that we do in Europe, right? So if you were to go like dig up a battlefield somewhere in like France or England or something, there'd be places where you could go to, right? Some spot from the hundreds year, the hundred year war, which was actually like 300 years long, but where you would find mass, mass graves, battlefields, hundreds of, you know, artifacts that, you know, at this point have probably been unearthed, but that someone unearthed at some point that shows that hundreds of people from either side, from either culture had died in a place. And we don't find that anywhere in North America. We don't find archaeological records of war. We find the archaeological record of battle, of people fighting three, four, 10 versus 20, but not hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people just lining up to kill one another, like we find in the other hemispheres. And I think a large part of this is that we have in our oral tradition record of the fact that that culturally it was more valuable to spare an enemy, but make them admit defeat than it was to actually kill them. And that's because for us, a lot of a lot of our disputes were territory disputes and were resource disputes. And so if you wanted a hunting ground, it was better off to send someone back to say, we can't hunt there anymore because the Lakota are here. They're there. They'll chase us off. That's their hunting ground now. So not fighting to the death actually served the purpose of you gained the, the respect and the honor of your enemies as opposed to just their, their vitriol. And so I think when we look at the conflicts that we have now today, either the conflict in Israel or the conflict in Ukraine, I think the commonality that we see is there's there's a resource factor to either of these, right? There's a territory factor to either of these. And, and a lot of the fuel for the fire of the territory dispute comes from foreign colonial entities, right? And we exist in this time where war happens for profit and happens over resources. I, I think examining the colonial roots of a conflict on either side and saying, okay, like, who benefits off of the stock market, the resource decisions being made here? I, I think that's really a lot of, of what needs to be looked at on either side. Um, the, the, the speculation of yeah. what resources or property is worth in, in my you know, moral compass isn't worth, worth uh, taking away you know, the lives of hundreds or thousands mm. of people. Well, I love your, I love so many of the, the words you chose in that. Because we know at least one of those wars is just a, a huge political turmoil that just goes deeper and deeper and farther and farther and farther back in human history. And I, I guess you could you could say that about Ukraine as well, because, I mean, most of the territories on the planet right now were carved up by the mechanism that you just described in the end, right? Like, So rather than get into a debate about how far back we go to say who owns what is there a is there a lakota or an indigenous way of looking at this problem of ownership of land like the indigenous people don't think of ownership of of land as something you can own right no not really you know like i think the we, we wouldn't have a word for it in our language and it's a okay. hard concept to to wrap the the indigenous mind around but i think that that really the closer way that we see it is is belonging to the land itself and, and the the joke that i often use as someone whose worldview centers the earth itself as a singular organism 
is we are kind of would see that like like two fleas arguing over who owns the dog, right? <laughs> like if your lifespan is that much shorter than the than the thing the the organism who houses you, right? I don't think you really have much grounds to debate on on who owns it. And so I think from there there on out, I think the the struggle should really be in the organizing of community. So I think in all cases, community is usually the answer to colonization. That is super important. Okay. The next section on the New York Times is about business. And, you know, gosh, I, I, I don't know if there's is there's some insights that you can share with us, another right answer from indigenous societies and Lakotas in particular about, about commerce, about exchange of goods. I mean, it's such a major part of our lives. I don't think we should just skip that category. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to dig into it. Okay. So talk to us about how commerce and business and these this transactional part of our society translates into what Lakota's, they must have had some or have some transactional way of doing things. Yeah, for sure. Well, a story that I love on this is, is first, I'd encourage folks to, if they can on their own, look into the, the history of the economies and trade routes that existed in the United States or what is now called the United States and Canada prior to colonization, because just by like something as simple as like the creation of corn and then the proliferation of it, we can see that societies were trading clear down from South America up into North America for thousands and thousands of years. Right. But we didn't trade based on money and stock markets and all these things. And this story is actually the origin of the, the, euphemism or the slur, I don't know exactly what you would call it, but the, the phrase Indian giver, right? Oh. And so in the, the phrase Indian giver was meant as a slander, which came from, from the first colonists to try to trade with us. Okay. And they would get really mad because they would give us something. And then in the process of the, the gift exchange, we would receive their gift, share some of their gift and give some of their gift back to them. And they couldn't wrap their heads around this. But we'd come from thousands of years of a gift economy where you traded with people, but the intention of trade was not for one person to accumulate as much as they can. Like that's what the intention is, right? Under capitalism. But under our systems, the way that it worked instead was you trade with other groups of people, other cultures, other nations in order to make sure that everyone's needs are met. So this may be meant making a large trade, and then lots of smaller subsequent t- trades, maybe even giving back some of the thing you receive, right? So to make it super simple, like I'm Lakota, let's say I've got Buffalo, and I'm trading with this other group of folks, and they're from south of where I live, and they're able to cultivate corn, right? So I give them Buffalo, and they give me corn in exchange. Well, maybe I first show up, and as just a token of goodwill, I give them a huge quantity of buffalo, right? And in return, they're like, wow, he gave us so much. Let's give him a huge quantity of corn. And you sit in that and in the reciprocity of that, and you're like, wow, these people would give some of what makes them alive to make sure that I'm still alive. Then that's the basis of why we're trading, right? But then <laughs> you look at the material reality of the trade you've just made and you say, 
oh, okay, well, I don't really, you guys know how to cook the corn. That's your culture. So I'm actually going to give a portion of this to my friends who can use a little bit of it. I'm going to take some for myself. And then I'm going to give your corn back to you after I've taken what I needed from you. And they on the other side say, oh, the Lakota, they know how to cook the buffalo better. But a little will go good with this corn stew. So we'll take some, we'll give some to grandma, and then we'll give this back, right? And that's the origin of this idea, Indian giver. And so that for us is how we did business, was in such a way that, you know, it was about making sure that needs are met of communities as opposed to the goal of business to be for one individual to come away, you know, as the winner of the Monopoly board game. They've got it all at the end of the day. That is such an incredibly important way of looking at how we produce things in this world and then produce enough for everyone. Yeah. And then, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I I just think that's such a huge thing for us to remember is that like often like the, the goal of the production of the world that we live in is not to meet needs, right? The goal of production in the world that we live in is to generate profit. And so if we're always asking ourselves these questions of like, how are people's needs not met? We're making such a profit. I think it's really important to remember that those are two entirely different aims. Entirely different. Oh my God. That is so great. Okay. All right. Let's keep going because the New York Times is big today. Okay. And you're you're just nailing all these new truths for me. Okay. So how about strikes? Right now, we just got finished with the Hollywood writers strike in the news. And we've got the United Auto Workers strike happening. And then I think there's a major healthcare corporation in the country that's got nurses going on strike. So ta- is there any any wisdom in indigenous cultures about this concept of removing your work or effort from someone? I think a really important kind of viewpoint on this, I guess it is comes from when there was a time and for some indigenous tribes, this did happen. And for others, it didn't. So I don't want to make this a blanket statement, but there were a lot of tribes because of the time that colonization and genocide was happening that when European settlers encountered them, they tried to enslave them, right? That was a thing that was going on at the time. I'd really encourage people to look into the history in California and in the Southwest United States of indigenous people being enslaved by the Spanish, because there's a whole history of that that kind of mirrors what happened in the Southeast. But for other tribes, there were many tribes who, when they tried to enslave us, we would refuse to work at all. Because work ethic was not an ethic, right, within our culture. And this is one that always kind of stands out to me because there's not really any other ethic that you have to like put a label on as separate because it's just included in in ethics. Um, And so I think work ethic is an interesting kind of capitalist invention in that way. And so with that in mind, I think like it's important to remember in indigenous societies, like we had leaders, but we didn't have elections, right? We didn't have managers. We didn't have CEOs. But that didn't stop you from harvesting enough, you know, buffalo to feed and clothe thousands of people, right? So as as it happens in an anthill, as it happens in a flock of geese, or as it happens in human beings, creatures on earth know how to organize their labor and their energy, right? And so that's really all we do. do. Our cells are doing that within our own body, right? And so everything that we do kind of mirrors nature in that way. And we're in a really unique time where we have this, the case of these folks 
who very clearly do not mirror nature, right? right. Which is the the CEO, right? So if you are in a you know a pack of you know primates, we are all apes or gorillas or whatever, right? Someone who put themselves in the position of the CEO would be ousted really quickly, right? And that's what we saw in indigenous cultures is like, if you were a chief, you had to be a religious leader, right? At the same time as a political leader, and you had to be charismatic and you had to be well-liked and all of these things. And so I think what we see with all the strikes happening is a bit of that natural order kind of restoring itself within human society, which is to say like, oh, okay, we're hundreds of thousands of people and there's one individual who's gaining, or, or, you know, maybe 10 or 20 or however many, right? But there's one individual who's gaining the fruits of hundreds of thousands of people's labor. And that's what's happening with the writer's strike or the auto worker strike is, is people just want access to the value that their own labor is creating. And, you know, CEOs turn over quickly, right? They can be at this company and that company, and then they're lobbying and maybe they'll be running for president after that, right? But they're not the essential thing that keeps companies operating. The thing that companies can't operate without is the labor of hundreds of thousands of people. And so I think this movement to see all these strikes is a really is a really great thing of kind of restoring some of that natural order, which is that like if hundreds of thousands of people work together to create something, then hundreds of thousands of people should probably get the benefits of that creation as opposed to just one person. Talk to us about how leadership evolved in indigenous cultures and how it worked when somebody wasn't a good leader and who did people give their attention to? Was it all about who could shout the most egregious things and just the loudest or was it the most thoughtful or was it the kindest? Like what, how did leadership work? How does leadership work as well? You know, it's a funny thing because now a lot of us have to operate under tribal councils and all these things. Okay. Um, and so I would just, you know, first asterisk that by saying that's that's a form of government that the United States government made us use. And so traditionally, and I still think like within our communities, this is a lot of how it works, is that it's very egalitarian, right? And I'd say the strongest thing you can do or could do or historically people have done to become leaders within indigenous cultures is to have a vision. And whether that's some sort of revelatory vision like Sitting Bull had before the, you know, battle at the at the Greasy Grass, the little bighorn when his his folks def- defeated Custer, like he had a dream of all of that happening and he spoke it to the people and then it came true, right? And so the, you know, it it be kind of equivalent to if if after you know 9-11, George Bush is oh, like, I had a dream. It was Osama bin Laden, and I'm gonna be on the first tank leading everybody out there, and this is how we're gonna handle it, right? And so that's how you became a leader. And that's exactly what Sitting Bull did for us, which is yeah. that he said to the people, Okay, I had this vision, this is how the battle is gonna go, and I'll be the first one to lead the charge. Wow. Right. And so it took kind of being a holistic person to be a leader, right? You had to be someone that people admired spiritually, culturally, and then in what other whatever aspect you were leading folks. And for us, we had different chiefs who would lead a war party or a hunting party. And then another chief who might be the, the decision maker, right? At other times, when it's just times of peace, where are we gonna camp? How are we going to, you know, do this, this ceremony or this celebration or whatever? And those people kind of rotated, right? Based on who was 
seeing what the people needed and actually going out and make it happen. And people would just follow the folks who made it happen. And then kind of the baseline government underneath that, if you will, the, the branch that isn't the executive branch was the grandmas, right? And that was kind of our, our steady compass was that you weren't going to get things done without the approval of the matriarchs of the folks who had been around for, for a considerable amount of time and who had raised probably you and everybody else and the folks that you may be bickering with. And, and so I think that's, that's a, that's a lot of how it worked for us was just leading based on the things that, that I think like are easiest to understand, which is this person says they're going to do things and accomplishes them. And overall we have to have some sort of compassionate compass for which our, our society is, is guided on. And that's going to be the grandmas because they, they raised every one of us here. You know, at some point we all came out of them. That's who we ultimately have to respect. Oh, that is so, and that goes back to nature too. I wrote an article a few years ago that I'll put in the show notes about grandmother killer whales. Do you know about that whole scene? It's really something. Scientists know that grandmother killer whales and only one other species on the planet stop menstruating at a certain age. And they, they evolutionarily, it looks like that happens so that they can not compete with their daughters for food and resources and raising babies and stuff so that they can be elevated to the one with the wisdom who knows where the salmon is this time of year or on and on it goes. This matriarchal wisdom responsibility of grandmothers, I think we're we're sorely missing something in society that we aren't looking there for guidance right now. Absolutely. I, I agree so much. And I would just say that in Lakota, the root for the word compassion and the root for the word grandmother are the same thing. And to me... I think that that points exactly at like what we're all kind of globally aching for and what's mirrored to us and taught to us by nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to take a break now. And when we come back, we're going to continue down the article list of the New York Times and keep help having Connor give us a more expanded version of what's possible. You know how the constant negative noise in our digital lives feels like it's reaching a boiling point? Now, many of us have tuned out the news and social media almost entirely. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. There are newsworthy stories about amazing progress, innovation, leaps in human potential, and wonders in the natural world, and they're just not reaching the top of our feeds. We can have access to this, but none of us has the time or maybe even the emotional stamina to search through all the doom and gloom news to find what's right with the world. Okay, enter the goodness exchange. There, we are giving instant access to positive news for curious people. Did you hear about the recent Harvard study that found that exposure to just four minutes of good news can make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Well, I don't know about you, but I need those kind of numbers in my life. So if you want to live with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, you join us at the Goodness Exchange. Everyone around the world has the opportunity to access this kind of content. And we've promised no politics for about a decade, so you're safe from all that distraction as well. Second, you allow this new 
more positive, balanced worldview to put a spring in your step again. It can change the way you react to your kids, your coworkers, everybody you come in contact with. And the stories we write about can make you the idea person in your circles. These challenging times call for us to wake up and take control of our perspective. The people who use the goodness exchange have the ability to react to the harshness of the world much different because they know way more about what's right with the world. And that's a resource. So subscribe to the goodness exchange, our YouTube channel and the podcast, and use this content to live a more expansive worldview. It is still an amazing world out there and you can be a part of it. Welcome to the conspiracy of goodness. Okay, we're back and we're going through the New York Times with this wonderful translator of indigenous wisdom, Connor Ryan. And he's with every passing day, getting himself deeper and deeper into the culture that his people come from. And where is it? Colorado, the Lakota Nation? So our place, our most sacred place is the Black Hills, Hesapa of South Dakota. And then our territory, the Ocheti Shakoan Nation, which includes Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota tribes, is is a huge swath that extends, okay. yeah, from the Rocky Mountains on one side, clear over to the Great Lakes on the other side, up into Canada and down, you know, as far as the middle of Colorado. So we used to, you know, we were nomadic and we had a huge territory, but my folks in particular are Hukpapa Lakota, which means the ones who camp on the end. And we were one of the more northern bands. So Powder River country and the the area to the north of the Black Hills would have been like primarily Mm -hmm. where we were. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so Connor doesn't, of course, speak for all indigenous people, but he is, he is sharing with us. He's kind enough to share with us the wisdom of there are more than one right answer kind of statement. So we're down to the part about other big stories in the New York Times. One of them here today is, of course, you know, police violence and, oh, guess there's there's three different violent articles about man's inhumanity to man there. And I'm not judging any of the folks involved in those articles at all. But can you answer for us how disputes were settled in, in Native culture that's different than what winds up in the front page of the news in our world? Yeah, I think for sure. I think one of the biggest things that I look back to is, uh, you know, instead of people being accountable to like a singular government or a singular police force, people were accountable to one another. So one of my favorite stories is our most, one of our most famous leaders is Crazy Horse. And Crazy Horse rose to prominence as a leader at a, at a really young age. And when he was, you know, in his I guess would kind of be like young adulthood. He fell in love with someone for love, right? But in Lakota traditions, marriages could be for love or they could sometimes be kind of political and arranged, right? Mm -hmm. And so the woman that Crazy Horse fell in love with ended up being arranged to be married with someone else and Mm -hmm. went on to have that marriage and all these things. And so as as he rose to prominence and became a leader, Crazy Horse, uh, you know, the power got to his head at some point. Mm-hmm. And even though everyone respected him, he made a decision, which was to go and take this other man's wife. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when he made that decision, he should be, he's the war chief of the whole tribe. He's all these things, but everybody knew that was wrong. And that's not the way we do things. So an, a group 
led by his own brothers and cousins, closest relatives, the people he was closest with in life, his uncles who had mentored him. They rounded up a posse and they went and grabbed Crazy Horse and they pulled him from his teepee, right? And they kicked his ass. <laughs> and um, they took away his shirt and they were like, you're wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Everybody knows that you shouldn't have done that. And we're taking this war shirt that you have that signifies that you're in this place of honor. We're taking that away from you collectively. But you're still the most equipped for the job. You're still our war chief. We still need you. But also, we're going to hold you accountable. And you're accountable to us, not to, you know, some book of laws or some book of religious codes or whatever it might be, you know, some other political faction that's in charge. None of that. You're accountable to us. And, and to me, I think that's what's missing from our relationship to violence in the world is that the the source of violence doesn't have accountability. And so I think that's that's a lot of what's what's missing in that and that, you know, like violence up to a certain point, like isn't always bad. Right. There's some times that, you know, I got my butt kicked when I was a kid that I probably needed it. Or I learned like, you know, in peewee football, I started to learn a healthy relationship to violence of like, this is how hard I can hit someone and still get out the next play. And like, I think that physicality and, and those urges within us are something that are, you know, innate to being organisms and every other organism on earth does that. So I think to have like the experience expectation that our world should have no violence might be a bit extreme. But how does our relationship to violence change such that it serves the purposes that it serves in nature to, to keep us balanced in our roles and our relationship to, to one another, right? I, I think of that every time that, you know, a, a buffalo throws a tourist in Yellowstone. You don't blame the buffalo for being violent there, do you, right? So I, I think our boundaries to violence, you know, need to be similar, you know? And I look at some politicians these days and I'm like, boy, I wish their friends would have kicked their ass with some of the ways that, you know, not even just the decisions they make, but sometimes just the way that they talk about each other or women or any of those things, right? Right. And it shows like nobody held you accountable and put you in your place when you needed to. So I yeah, that's my little Lakota take on that. I love that. It reminds me of a great episode of a podcast called Hidden Brain that I will put in the show notes. It's called How Outrage is Hijacking Our Future. And Hidden Brain is a podcast about neuroscience in an ordinary people way. It's not too scientific. It just explains how our brains work. And there's this great part of that episode where he explains that where we went wrong with social media was in the anonymity part of it. Because if you could just say anything you wanted, and do anything you wanted and remain anonymous, that took the personal responsibility to your community and to others out of the equation. And then we just have run amok. He reminds us that that the last time we had a human brain upgrade was about 35,000 years ago. And 35,000 years ago, if you weren't responsible to your people around the fire, you had to sleep with one eye open all night long. If you said something that was way out of whack, you could just get one in the head with a rock and that would be game over for you. So you, you know, you didn't get this shield of anonymity. And so I think that what you're talking about with personal responsibility and our behavior to each other is a big part of the equation right now. And I think, I thank you for sharing that perspective for us. 
Okay, so last few here because I want to keep track of time. Do you have any thoughts on how we have uh, natural disasters, right? You know, natural disasters wind up in the news all the time. And they, they really prey upon our sense of kind of morbid curiosity, I think, the news does, instead of our compassion. And is there anything you'd like to say about how indigenous cultures deal with natural disasters and are just that level of common, our hu- common humanity falling apart? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting one, especially as it like becomes more common Yes, in the, the era of climate change in particular. Yeah. So the, the fire one is what really, really stands out to me. And I think it's true of other ones in some ways, but when we look at like the fires that are happening, that happened in Canada this year, all these different ones that we had across the West in the past couple of years before. And, and I actually had the experience of going on a run this summer. And while I was out for a run, I took a left at a fork that I usually take a right at. And usually when I run right and up the trail, I run through this zone that every time as I run through it, I was like, man, this, this ecosystem badly needs fire, right? And one day I go for a run and I went the other way. And sure enough, the thunderstorm that day starts a fire in the zone that I otherwise usually would be running in, which was okay. kind of scary and unsettling, but also made me feel like, oh, wow, I have a pretty keen eye for this relationship to the health of the forest as I've been spending more time out here. And and what it really makes me think of is like in that specific spot, right? I was scared of the way that the fire potentially could pose a threat to me and my home because I was just a few minutes drive from my house where this fire started. And then there's the other part of you that recognizes, okay, most of these things that we view as natural disasters, like actually play these really important ecological roles. And so I think that's true of a lot of what happens, you know, like I'm not as buffed on the seismic activities. So like, don't hold me to this on, on earthquakes or volcanoes. Like some of those are do kind of unequivocally feel like tra- tragedies. But when we look at like, what are the roles that these superstorms are playing? What are the roles that these massive wildfires are playing within our ecology? There's a lesson there for us as human beings and whether that's like at the scale of like our broad policy decisions as far as how we're going to operate food systems and transportation and all those things or it's as small as like what relationship do we actually have to the forest immediately around us when's the last time you know if you live in the woods when's the last time you cleaned up the brush when's the last time like a prescribed burn needed to happen in these places there shouldn't be 40 50 years right? Of, of leaves piling up on the ground, these kinds of things. So I think that it, it really also begs this important question of like, okay, if ecosystems need fire, if they need the occasional flood or superstorm or whatever to make their balance happen, then maybe the tragedy and the issue is less in the effects that's happening on us as human beings and is more a tragedy of how we've missed our ability to live in such ways that we're able to live with these forces of nature that, that have persisted, you know, across the earth for millions and millions of years. Yeah. And that's a, I think it's a question that we're just going to have to deal with this morning. I, I was reading a scientific journal about the, have you heard of the, the green glacier coming across the middle West? It's a invasive red cedar that's taking over all the grasslands and it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible 
onslaught because we need grasslands so much for for all the diversity and the very specifics of what that carbon sink is. And these red cedars are just a constant march. And they said the single most important thing about that whole problem in our ecosystem is that fire kills everything about the red cedar. It kills the tree, it kills the seeds, kills the roots. And so if we were just creating constructive managed burns, we wouldn't have this green glacier overtaking the prairies of the United States. Oh, no, I hadn't heard about that one. That's that's pretty interesting. And it just makes you think like, you know, that that biodiversity that, that was there before is encouraged by fire. You know, right. like it when there's a fire, the first thing to come back are the grasses. So if it's just grassland, fire can be there all the time. Yes. And they make a great point in this in this that in this article that we need grassland. I mean that that is a giant thing and, and and we've got our cultures all into planting trees but there's yeah. places where trees don't belong they never were there <laughs> yeah we got into that a little bit on our last one with the buffalo subject but i think that's a it's a really underrated part of like mm-hmm. you know people want to plant a tree to be a carbon sink and reforest the world and all these things but uh the old growth prairie sinks a lot of carbon too and provides yeah. a really important role Yeah, well, you know, as we wrap up here, there's a question that relates to this so well. You said to me in one of our pre-calls, people have always been adapting to the earth, but now we're trying to adapt the earth to us. And that goes back to what you said, you know, know, maybe we shouldn't be building mega homes on ocean edges, right where hurricanes are going to take you know, 400 yards of beach away in a night. Talk to us a little bit about the way we're trying to adapt the earth to us and how we get back on a different track. Yeah. I mean, I think at the core of it, right, is like everybody wants to be alive to survive, right? And that's the most fundamental urge of probably every living thing is to just like continue existing. And I think that we live in a society when with regards to that, that has really like mixed up the long-term and the near-term ability to survive. Is your culture oriented around short-term or long-term survival, right? right? And if you're oriented around short-term survival, then yeah, build it as high as you can, build it as big as you can. Let's make sure that we are remembered. Right. But if you're oriented around long term survival and you have ecological scientific knowledge embedded in your culture, then you're going to come up with a very different perspective of like, oh, let's build it low. Let's build it simple. Let's build it in such a way that, hey, if there's a fire or a hurricane, we can just abandon the village and live and we won't be too sad about it. Right. And instead, we have this culture that very much values the material accumulation that one individual can make in their life far more than it values that individual's ability to pass life on to future generations, right? And that just puts us as human beings on a different page than every organism that we know of, right? Because every other organism seeks to just exist. It's content to just live its life. It doesn't need to make a statue of itself or, you know, prove its wealth or worth over the other, you know, beings and its herd or its pack or its flock. And instead we decide to, to differentiate ourselves in such a way from the rest of nature. And and I think that when we do that in mass to the, to the scale that we have, then we're going to see 
the impacts of our actions be something that we can't force nature to adapt beyond. And, and I think that's where we're at when it comes to like a lot of these things, like, you know, they're like, oh, hopefully we can just carbon capture and electric cars our way out of this, this climate crisis that we're in. And it's like, hey, I'm glad you're working on the solutions and I'm hopeful for them. But uh, the reality that a lot of these carbon capture folks are finding is that it takes more energy in electricity and often in carbon emissions to take the carbon out of the air than it does. Like they emit more needing enough power to power a carbon capture machine than that can actually capture in carbon. Right. Right. And I think that kind of like sums up the, the way of the world that we're in right now, which is like, we're running from this monster that we're also like, every time you throw something at the monster to, Mm -hmm. to try and knock it down, it absorbs that thing and grows larger. And that's sort of the issue that we have right now with that, that way of viewing things. And so I think the only way to, to, you know, outrun the monster is to keep it at a reasonable size. And, And that's what that, that way of, indigenous you know way of life did was it made it so that okay you know we may not have a culture that ever builds a statue of liberty or an empire state building but we have a culture that can exist for tens of thousands of years as opposed to you know a bright flash in the pan that is a roman empire or a united states colonial empire and so yeah i think we're at a time now too where like we're we're able to speak about that to where we can start to decide how we want to live. And, and for me, you know, my, my mantras has always been live simply so others may simply live. That's the final thought, right? That, that in all choices, your short-term or your long-term reminder is super, super powerful, Connor. So I can't thank you enough for joining us. I, I'm going to circle back regularly with you and maybe we can do the New York Times thing again. That, that was just enlightening. I'm never going to forget the points that you've made today. Thank you so oh. much. Yeah, absolutely. That was a blast. And yeah, I'd be stoked to be back again. Okay. Uh, in Lakota, we have no word for goodbye. We just say later. So, okay. Know. All right. I'll, I'll take you up on later. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. I hope the the insights that Connor and I shared with you today will carry you through your week and you'll find a spring in your step and all the goodness and progress that we've been talking about. Thanks.